Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. I'm here as always with Global Markets and Economics correspondent David Scott. Pleasure to be back, Paul. Thank you. And our guest this week is the Federal Treasurer, Scott Morrison. Welcome back, Scott. Great to be here, Paul and David. Thank you very much. Look, one of the good things about having the Treasurer on the show is that I think in contrast to some of his more recent predecessors, uh, he's been attempting to explain uh, some of the complexities facing the Australian economy uh, through things like commodity price volatility, our levels of trade exposure, uh, and low levels low levels of uh, global inflation. And what he says on those subjects may not always hit the headlines, um, but it's great to get him on the show and get a chance to ask about some of the issues we talk, we talk about regularly on this show, um, like wages, growth, inflation, housing prices, and the new and emerging component parts of economic output that are so important uh, to the current and future state of um, the economy and, of course, the federal budget. Uh, Treasurer, let's get straight to it. Um, Do you think the level of the Australian dollar is a bit high at the moment? It's not something Treasurer should speculate on. I I won't on on this program. I mean, mean, we have a floating exchange rate for a reason. It's not for the Treasurer to jawbone it one way or the other. Um, But, uh, you know, we're obviously aware, as everyone else is, uh, that uh, if it's too strong, that obviously makes that uh, very difficult for our exporting industries, and and uh, and there's been a lot of commentary on that. But uh, I, I noticed that uh, things have eased off a bit. Um, but uh, we'll see where the rest of the day goes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Dave, we got uh, well above eighty cents uh, during mm. the week, um, thanks to um, well uh, some strong Chinese data. Correct, and uh, more so the other uh, bigger moves also to do with the uh, the U.S. dollar. That's the uh, the major driving force behind it. Um, whilst uh, Scott won't go and speculate on the Australian dollar, I will. Um, my uh, my my perspective at the moment is that no, the Australian dollar is not overvalued at its current level. Um, first and foremost, the U.S. dollar has weakened ten percent or so uh, over the uh, course of this year so far. So that's uh, that's obviously helped a lot with commodity prices. It's helped with inflows into Asia. It's helped with risk appetite around the region. Um, when you put those things together, there's, uh, there's, it's hard to argue the Australian dollar shouldn't be a little bit higher. Um, but, of course, uh, being a former currency trader myself, that once you get the Australian dollar in a certain trading range, it's often very difficult to go in and pull it out of it. Uh, and if it stays elevated for a long period of time, then uh, obviously that's going to go and have some impact on our trade-exposed sectors. And that's uh, why the RBA uh, chose the opportunity this week to go and uh, do some very subtle jawboning of the uh, the Australian dollar and just uh, told what the impacts would be on uh, the economic growth, inflationary pressures, and also uh, employment growth. So for the time being, no, I don't think it's uh, it's obviously too uh, too high. But if it stays there for a prolonged period of time and we see commodity prices come off, then it may become an issue. So, Treasurer, a big part of this is the global trade picture. Um, we are seeing um, some pretty good signs um, that global data particularly global manufacturing uh, in Europe um, and the Chinese economy is looking okay. Um, What is the impact that we're seeing on the government side in terms of uh, receipts and activity um, uh, for the federal budget? 
Well, the budget is the data which has been released shows that it is it is tracking well. But I'm I'm just never complacent about these things. I mean, what one one thing I'm sure your listeners uh, will have observed is the volatility around these issues, and so you don't get too far ahead of yourself on this. There's the update that we're working to at the end of this year, and that will bring all that to book. Um, but the point you make about global trade and the global economy is right. Um, this is the basis for why I seen in the budget better days ahead. Um, that wasn't a hope. That was actually a codification of a emerging consensus, which has really, I think, been coming since the beginning of this calendar year. And it's just been building. And the data points continue to point to this. And uh, whether it was the G20 meeting I was at earlier in the year or the one the Prime Minister was just at, uh, th- these signs continue. Now, so long as they keep connecting... Uh, then I think we can continue to be um, you know, optimistic. Now, I'm optimistic by nature, uh, but it's, it, it is a, an informed optimism, I think. And uh, we've seen that flowing through in, in some of the business confidence data, even in the consumer confidence data. And I know that on the weekly basis is quite volatile, so I don't want to read too much into that. Uh, but there, people are increasingly seeing the better days ahead that I've spoken of, but you just can't take them for granted. <laughs> That's right. Um, one of the obvious um, questions, uh, and there's been a lot of talk about it um, uh, through all sorts of data that keeps um, coming our way, whether it's through um, the official inflation data, um, which shows um, headline inflation still running um, a bit ahead of wages growth. Um, there's, while there is this mounting sense that the global economy is looking okay. Back here in Australia, people just aren't maybe feeling that it is flowing through um, to um, to the household budget. Um, That's true. Uh, and to their pay packets. So that, that, that is um, both the perception and, and in many cases the reality. I mean, the data, the Hilda data that was released this week um, confirmed that, that the household incomes, um, however you measure them, um, and uh, there was a range of different measures, and they're all important measures, whether you take into account of tax and uh, transfer payment systems and so on, or just looking at gross data or, or, we, or on wages and so on. Household incomes have been flat. And that is um, something that has been concerning me from the day I stepped into this job. Uh, we need to see people earn more in this country. And that needs to flow uh, from a growing and expanding economy and, and improvements in what companies are able to earn uh, and driving the investment. That's where people's wages are going to go up from. You're not going to make your wage go up by taxing someone else more. Your wage will stay the same. Um, that's a zero-sum game. We're not interested in a zero-sum game or flat-earth economic thinking. You, you've really got to grow the economy, and it has to be a growth-first agenda, not an envy-first agenda. With the um, these signs picking up that there's a bit more of a, of a brighter global outlook, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that you can do um, uh, to help household budgets is um, income tax relief. Mm-hmm. Um, are you starting to think about that? We've already done it. I mean... W- Taxes are actually lower today than they were when I became treasurer. Uh, so there already has been income tax relief, and there's certainly been corporate tax relief to small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, but we, we remain in a difficult fiscal environment. We are moving the budget back towards balance, and you know these things have to be done where the budget can, um, can support it. But uh, my first inclination will always be, wherever possible, to make people's taxes lower. I mean, we're, as, a, we, as a government, we have what I call our tax speed limit, which is our tax-to-GDP cap of 23.9%. Now, last it was earlier this week, actually, Chris Bowen confirmed that the Labor government would abolish the tax-to-GDP cap. They just let it rip. Now, what happens when you, when you follow that type of policy in your budget is the economy will eat itself. 
if you allow taxes as a burden on the economy to get too great. And it's, you know, it's, it's like that rather disturbing in, image of a snake eating itself from its tail. But that's, a, that's what happens if you take the speed limits off tax. And we won't do that when we subject ourselves to the discipline of a tax-to-GDP cap. And that means that if, it, if you're in, in danger of breaching that, then obviously the things you need to look to first is those levels of personal income taxation and uh, the taxes you're putting on businesses. Well, because I think one of the things that for, for middle-income um, households, um, that's one of the issues at the moment. Even, even if there is a small wage rise, mm. um, you know, the ATO is still... Uh, uh, skimming off a, a fairly significant uh, amount of it, um, like particularly if you're um, a middle to high income earner, say you're on over a hundred thousand um, dollars, mm. the um, the uh, the ATO is um, um, taking a significant chunk of any well, extra rate wage. Yeah. Well, as you know, the deficit levy came off as promised on the first of July of this year, as it should, and uh, and and it should not be put back on. Uh, but it is our it's Labor Party's policy to put up the top marginal rate of tax by two percent. And that would mean, uh, combined uh, with you know, the deficit, uh, sorry, the um, the Medicare levy, and uh, getting up to about forty nine and a half percent. Now that's not a competitive position for your economy to be in any more than having a, a corporate tax rate of thirty percent ten years from now is a is a competitive position to be in. So, um, having a competitive tax regime is is always in. You know, is, a, is a critical objective of the government. And we, we already moved the threshold from 80 to 87,000. And I was very clear at the time in saying, I'm not pretending this is a big tax cut. It's not, but it, it, was, a, it was a clear statement of faith to the, to the Australian taxpayers that when we can and where we can, we will. And I did not want to see us cross a Rubicon here where those on full-time ordinary earnings at 80,000 we're going to go into the second highest tax bracket. I, I thought that would have said something very bad about the direction of our, our personal income tax system. But um, let's not forget also that 40% or thereabouts of people, households, uh, pay no net tax after um, the transfer system comes into it. The top 10% pay 50% of personal income tax. Uh, we, have a, we have a very progressive tax system and transfer system in this country. So I wasn't surprised to see in the, in the Hilda data this week that while household incomes have been flat, the progressive tax and transfer system has actually protected against rises in inequality. And that's its job. That's what it's supposed to do. Um, but to suggest that it should be made even more progressive and more pernicious on those sectors of the taxpaying community that drive the growth, which lifts incomes, I think is, is, is very negative economic thinking. But that's what Labor are proposing. They're wrong about that. But they're playing to a sentiment. Um, they're seeking to seduce Australians with this rather you know, honey-filled talk of um, you know, making others pay more so you'll get more. Um, but it's a lie. It doesn't, it doesn't play out that way. Um, you end up eroding growth in your economy, uh, reducing people's ability to build up their own wealth, um, and as a result, you know, cost jobs and cost people's incomes. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a very seductive but very poisonous pill. I, I must say I was a little bit um, exasperated with um, some of the way that some of the Hilda data was... Um was presented in certain corners mm. um, uh, where we saw, um, I think, Professor Wilkins, who runs the, the, mm. the study, um, I've got a quote here from him. Since the GFC, uh, he's talking about um, 
the progressive taxation system mm. um, and um, more low-income people um, gaining employment. And he said that you know it hasn't translated into increased inequality in incomes. Mm. And it's very much because we've done a very good job of keeping the employment to population rates quite high. Basically, yeah. um, uh, with the migration program that we have, mm. um, that we've got... Um, the, the jobs, the number of jobs and the types of jobs being yeah. created um, are, are managing to balance that out. Yeah. Um, so it's a pretty good result. And I will point out, that's by successive governments now. So that's, no, I'm, I'm yeah. not making a political point about it from that perspective. I just, I, I'm just saying that the progressive tax and transfer system has a role to play. It's played it. The thing that concerns me in the Hilda data is that incomes are flat. And so the question is, well, what do you do about that? Well, the, what, what you do about it is you grow the economy. That's... That's what you have to do about it. You don't then just focus your policy on how you carve up a diminishing pie because that just makes the pie diminish even more. Um, you've got to grow the pie. And, and we're, we're now, I think, in a very a traditional um, political economic discussion. The Labor Party wants to have a debate about how you carve it up and uh, we want to have a, a, a positive discussion about how we make it bigger. Um, it's one of the oldest economic debates there is. And it's, uh, you know, no, nothing new under the sun. Let, let me ask you about one specific thing that um, Bill Shorten has been talking about recently mm -hmm. is um, uh, applying um, a 30% tax rate to distributions to adults um, from family trusts. Yeah. Um, so where do you stand on this? Well, first of all, it's just another whack on small business. That's the bottom line. He's already admitted it's going to hit 200,000 small businesses. So when you add that to the fact that they're going to reverse the legislated tax cuts for, for small businesses up to 10, um, 10 million in turnover each year and for medium-sized businesses up to 50. When you add to that the fact that they will pull the rug out from the uh, improvements to the comp competition laws for small business up against big business, they're, they're backing big business in that discussion. And then you add to you know um, cutting off at the knees um, what they want to do with trusts. Um, it'll be whacking day for small business if a Bill Shorten government is elected. And small business know that. So it's not just this measure in isolation which demonstrates a, a real either deliberate, which is the, the worst, I, so, I suppose, um, perception you could put on it, or uh, you know, an ill-informed um, view from the Labor Party about what the role of these trusts are and how they work. Now, what I find puzzling about uh, what Labor are doing on this is why won't they release the the, the, um, the PBA costings on this? I'll tell you why. Um, because to do that, they would have to say, well, have they made a discount to their revenue estimates on the basis of how people would change their arrangements to get around this? I mean, you know, people can form partnerships, people can do distributions through traditional unit trusts. They, there are even things they can do through testamentary trusts. I mean, there, there are any number... I mean, for those who want to minimise their tax... I've found whether it's those who want to get around the immigration system when I was immigration minister, get around the social security system when I was social services minister, or get around the tax system as treasurer. Those who are intent on doing this um, have, a, have a great enthusiasm. And in, you've got to be careful when you're trying to ensure that you're not seeing the integrity of the system undermined, that you just end up punishing people using things for legitimate reasons to grow their wealth. I mean, these instruments are often used as a... As, as, to, 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 to boost the capital position of these companies, to reinvest in their companies and to grow their businesses, which is what puts people's wages up and grows the economy. So I, I, I think they should release the full PBA costings because it will also highlight – I mean, they, 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 they backed down and said it won't apply to farms. 
Hmm. Well, what's a farm trust? I mean, if you if you're a high, very high net worth individual, and uh, it's not currently uh, inverted commas farm trust, well, what they just got to go and buy a hobby farm, and it's a farm trust. Uh, and if it's it's fair enough for a farm as a small business not to be hit by this, why is it fair enough to hit, you know, the corner shop? Why is it fair enough to hit a small technology company or, um, you know, a, an, agri- an agribusiness company as opposed to a farm? I mean, the inconsistency is going on. I mean, they just hope this would be a lightning rod for their envy campaign, mm. and uh, and I don't think it's proved to be that because um, it's got more more hairs on it than a dog. Let me move on to something that's happening uh, in industry. Um, the RBA statement uh, on monetary policy this week mentioned some of the disinflationary pressures for the retail industry. And we're recording on Thursday morning, and Amazon has just announced to confirmed its plans mm. to set up a distribution centre uh, in Dandenong South in, in Melbourne, right? Mm. Um, but the RBA was referring to competition from overseas retailers, and it's, you know, putting downwards pressure on prices, which is squeezing people's margins. And we're actually seeing the retail sector, which is a very important employer, mm. um, shedding jobs at the moment. Mm. Um, now, um, it's massively deflationary for some sectors, these big companies coming in. What are your thoughts on these companies which can gear up? They have huge amounts of revenue because they're in so many markets. Mm. Uh, they're big scale players and they're able to, um, you know, uh, come in and cause this much uh, disruption uh, to the um, the way um, industry is set up here in Australia? Well, let's sort of go back to first principles. I mean, the first issue is is that the consumer always comes first. I mean, that's the consumer always comes first. And what we have seen in April and May is an improvement uh, in, in the retail sales figures over that period, and that's welcome. Um, the commentary we've already had about what's happening with incomes is, is, is linked to that, and that's why we want to see incomes improve because that will obviously support consumption, and that's all, all good for the retail sector. As a government, we've already taken action, and we legislated this just before uh, we broke for, for the winter uh, recess, and that was to ensure that the low-value threshold on GST uh, was removed, which puts um, our Main Street retailers uh, on the same footing as those selling from overseas. Uh, so we'll continue to take those actions. But at the end of the day, it's not the government's job um, to uh, effectively um, remove competition from the retail sector. But as in the same way we've acted on things like multinational tax, and, and we have acted, we have you know, some of the toughest, if not the toughest, multinational tax avoidance laws anywhere in the world today. Um, our diverted profits tax came into being on the 1st of July this year, which I outlined in my first budget. Our multinational anti-avoidance laws uh, were the product not just of our own work, but working with other countries. Because across the G20 in particular, we understand the pressures on all of these countries' tax bases. And whether you know, it's with the digitisation of the economy or the disruption we're seeing from large players, you need a coordinated and a concerted effort across economies to get a clear set of rules which says to these guys, well, you exist but don't think you get to just work around everybody's tax systems and regulatory systems because you're big enough and ugly enough to do that. Now, I think what we're now seeing in this space is a discussion will emerge about how you deal with competition policy internationally, globally, with other countries. 
about how you deal with these sorts of forces as well. Mm. You, you can't assume they're all negative. There are certainly some things that would cause concern for retailers here and people who work in the retail sector. I understand that. Um, and so in, just like with multinational tax avoidance with a lot of these big players, now some of these players now are you know, verging on you know, bigger than countries um, and, uh, and they have you know, a, a great deal of agility to move around and how they operate. So yeah, Amazon was um, $138 billion US dollars in, in revenue last year. <laughs> it's a big company. So I think it's not just an issue for Australia. It's an issue that we will have to engage through the G20 with other uh, like-minded countries about how we align, I think, some of our um, regulatory and comp- competition law systems, antitrust systems, things like this, um, to so ensure that there's a fair and level playing field for, for, for everyone. Uh, and uh, But at the end of the day, um, I always assess competition policy by what's best for the customer. Look, If they win, then that's good for your economy. One of the other areas um, that technology is going to, um, uh, I think, A, in, it probably introduce some, uh, some downward pressure on prices mm-hmm. and fees, um, but also increase competition uh, is through uh, fintech, which yeah. I know you're very uh, passionate about. Um, now, um, pretty important development recently, um, open banking. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you've got this independent review uh, underway. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, talk to us about that, what's involved, and um, what uh, do you think uh, is going to – what do you see Envision as being the end result uh, of this inquiry and, and the sure. impact on the banking sector? I, well – we, we want, obviously, a banking system that's unquestionably strong, and, and you've seen the most recent um, requirements come out of APRA, which we, we, you know, we think is a good move, and that's been well-received uh, in the sector, so that's obviously a, a key goal for us. Uh, it's also important that banks be unquestionably fair, and we've got the uh, the bear, as it's now known, the Banking Executive Accountability Regime is, uh, is coming in. I'm always amazed how quickly people move to acronyms on these things, but nevertheless, that's coming in, and uh, a number of other measures we've got designed to improve accountability and fairness in the banking system. Um, that's important. Uh, but the other area that I'm very passionate about is unquestionably competitive. Now, there are, there are two particular areas we're working on on that. One is ensuring that the fintech uh, advances continue to be encouraged, fostered, nurtured, uh, because that not only provides the great opportunity, I think, for greater competition in the banking system, but very important productivity improvements right across the business sector, particularly for small and medium-sized businesses. I mean, we that is, I would argue, very high on the list in terms of what can produce the next big productivity boost in our economy is these types of technological applications. I mean, you just think about it. I mean, real-time payments, real-time accounting, cloud accounting, all of these things mean that you're spending more time growing your business, less time running around filling out paperwork for the tax office or, or other people. RegTech is another huge opportunity in this space. I mean, the time gift it will give, give back to the economy, I think, is 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 hard to estimate. And we're, we're now the fifth ranked in terms of fintech and we've had uh, you know 90% growth uh, in uh, investment in these uh, fintech operations you know more than 650 million so th- these are good achievements so we want to see that continue and we've done regularly changes to support that the second area is whether it's challenger banks new entrants uh, smaller um, players being able to call themselves banks um, to open that up more and and how data is used and the, the consumer uh, data rights uh, agenda is is critical to that. And uh, Scott Farrell, I've asked to, to to take on that job of of 
giving us advice about how we can move to that open banking regime by the end of the year. But what does it mean at the end of the day? What it means is I would hope to see a banking system with more options available for customers where they're competing on the quality and price of services which they're offering, uh, not on uh, trading away um, uh, credit integrity in the system. Um, if we're just going to produce a system where people are going to um, compromise uh, their credit management to grow their market share, well, that's not good for system stability, and that's where I think you'll find APRA being pretty attentive. Uh, but where it is about a very customer-facing, improved service cost-tailored uh, option, which can be done by a very small operator or you know, very large ones. Um, innovation in this sector is what we want to see happen, and I think more entrants can achieve that. So one of the issues is the, the, the data that's held by the banks, particularly the large ones, mm. uh, is very valuable. Um, mm. They're able to leverage it in different ways. Correct. Um, not just on the credit side, but in terms of cre- um, understanding customers, projecting spending patterns, mm-hmm. um, being able to predict what kind of offers you might be more interested in. Right. So um, attempting to prize or um, reduce their grip on some of that data, they're not going to like it. Um, and uh, this year, um, I mean, through the banking levy, et cetera, you know, relations between yourselves and the <laughs> government haven't exactly uh, – between yourselves and the, and the major banks particularly haven't exactly been warm. Um, <laughs> what, what's their reception been like to this? Well, I've got to say on this issue, I think it's been constructive. Um, because we've been having discussion for some time, and my fintech advisory uh, group, uh, which is led by Craig Dunn, and as you know, Craig's on the Westpac board, and but you know he he, he carefully manages you know his fintech passion for the smaller players and his role more broadly. I think very he's very dexterous on that. Uh, but they have been you know they've been obviously pushing the envelope on this, and but you know we have representatives also from some of the other big banks on on that on that uh, group as well. So it's been a good positive dialogue. The Productivity Commission report on data, open data, I think has also been very useful. In, in carrying the discussion forward. Um, I think banks do get it where this is heading and they'll, it's in their interest to adjust to where that's heading. I think sticking their head in the sand and holding back the tide and all this sort of stuff, um, I don't think they think is good for their business either. And I, don't, I know, I suspect they don't think that's sustainable. But you'll be pleased to know that uh, since the budget, I've caught up with most of the banks since then. And uh, I, I bumped into Ina Rev at uh, the Boris Johnson uh, uh, dinner the other night in Sydney. And, um, um, you know, close to an embrace for the, for the show of all of, all of, all of those around to, to, to let people know that uh, while we have our differences from time to time, um, it is a very professional relationship. I, I caught up with a number of the chairs the other day and others. So, look, the bank levies, you know, it's, it's law. So mm. that's done, dusted. We move on to dealing with all the many other challenges and we'll have a, some major legislation coming to the parliament when we come back uh, on a lot of those issues. So uh, and do you foresee this now um, collecting the amount that you've got uh, projected? No, uh, I've had no advice to suggest anything uh, different to that. Okay. Um, so just very quickly, um, I've got two more quick questions. One mm. is um, we're seeing some uh, continuing uh, strong growth in the property um, price market, particularly in the eastern, uh, on the eastern seaboard. Mm. Dave, this week, um, what have we seen? Yeah, CoreLogic had their latest uh, house price index come out and uh, 1.5% increase across the, uh, the nation's capitals, uh, leaving the, uh, the year-on-year growth at uh, 10.5%. Um, 
no surprise, the uh, the southeastern capitals were the ones that were the the most frothiest, if you want to go and call that, in terms of price growth. You've uh, you see Melbourne in excess of fifteen percent, uh, Sydney and Canberra in excess of twelve percent. Mm. Uh, so pretty strong rates of growth as well. Um, so treasurer, um, obviously, we're looking at um, credit growth still at around ten uh, percent. Well, that's that's the APRA cap for, uh, for investors. Uh, in terms of what we saw, the uh, the RBA released uh, some data earlier this week on uh, on housing credits running just above six percent. Um, investor lending is still running at a hotter rate uh, than uh, than owner occupier. Um, it's just uh, I just wanted to go and ask you about the uh, the regulatory side. Now mm. we're seeing that APRA has made a lot of uh, a lot of changes mm. uh, recently, uh, particularly focused on the uh, the investor side, also mm. towards uh, interest only lending. Just. I want to go and ask you, the 10% cap on uh, investors in particular, mm. would that be something that would be, say we continue having this, uh, this very strong price growth at the moment, uh, particularly in those, mm. uh, these capitals in the East Coast, whether there'll be potentially some sort of further regulatory macroprudential tightening that may, uh, may ensue if we continue on this path? Well, there's no, there's no move to change those sittings uh, now. I mean, we only just had the um, changes on an interest-only loans a, a few months ago, and, and that's still working its way through the system. And, um, I mean, month-to-month data, I mean, you can't read too much into that. Now, the other months we've seen uh, different responses in... You've had a, an impact more recently of some of the changes that came in on stamp duty concessions and things like that, and while clearance rates are, are high, the volume... I, you know, I, I don't think people would say as strong uh, at this point, but you know we're coming into spring, and and that obviously real estate agents, you know, get a few more hoardings out um, when you come into spring. Uh, so look, no, there's the, the settings we've got at the moment. I, I think uh, it's for the ultimately for the council financial regulators and APRA in particular to to calibrate that. But I've always had a very strong view that having the calibrated approach through the macro pro response is the right way to go. I mean, you take the sledgehammer of abolishing negative gearing and putting a 50% increase on capital gains tax. If you want a, if you want a hard landing of the housing market, we'll do that. Just do that. And uh, if, uh, if you know, we had a different result in last year's election, then that's what would have happened. And uh, for those who think that that would be a good idea, having a hard landing in the housing market, uh, well, um, you may not have a job if... if, if that would have happened in Australia. Uh, that some of the, the biggest risks, I think, to the Australian economy are obviously what we started out talking about, um, what was happening overseas globally, particularly in China, uh, and that uh, that that outlook at the moment, I'd say, over the you know the medium term, remains positive, and uh, that's that's welcome news and improving. Uh, but uh, when it comes to uh, household debt and the level of gearing, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, what is happening, uh, the potential you know, risks of a hard landing in the housing market and what that means for consumer confidence spending and so on through the economy. You just can't play games with that stuff and, and you've got to be very, very careful and calibrated, which is, I believe, what we've done and we've seen a tempering in it. But the fundamental response to housing is obviously on supply and uh, there was some good data on that yesterday, but that has to flow through it into, into work being done in commencements. Would you like to see just with the housing growth? Uh, would you like to go and see house prices just slow a touch further? Would that, would that be something that you can ideally? I don't think anyone in Australia honestly wants to see that uh, see the property market uh, crash. That will obviously wreak havoc in employment and the economy. But would you like to see it slow just a slight fraction further than what its current rates are? Well, what I'd like to see is supply increase. That's what I'd like to see. Um, because when you, I mean, the, the fundamentals in the market are about supply and demand, and the undersupply 
is then, you know, can be exacerbated by credit arrangements. Now, we've taken action on those credit arrangements, I think, to temper how particularly the growth in interest-only loans was exacerbating an undersupply problem. So we've taken action there. We're taking action on the supply front through what I announced in the budget and for state and territory governments to get on with housing targets and deliver that on the ground, uh, particularly in the eastern states. Uh, but the other thing we've got to be careful of, I was, I was in Perth earlier this week. I was in South Australia last week. Um, and, you know, they're not places where they're, they're, they're worried about rising house prices. If anything, in Perth, it's the reverse of that. And so, we, you know, we're, in, we're a government that exists at the national level and we have to take into account how these things fall on the ground right across the country. And uh, so I know it's a very important issue in Sydney and Melbourne, but uh, at the same time, we can't do things which will punish uh, people in the West or in the South. I've got to wrap up, but I can't let... Uh, you go without asking you about same-sex marriage. And you can't. I can't. I know you hate this, right? <laughs> I know you hate this, right? But what's going to happen next week? The government will stick to its policy. <laughs> um, so um, and if there was a free vote on the floor, would you vote in favour um, of a change to the Marriage Act? Well, I'm in favour of the government sticking to its policy. You've been listening to the Devil's uh, Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest on the show this week has been Federal Treasurer Scott Morrison. Uh, Treasurer, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great to be with you guys. Um, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at BIAUS. You can find the show on iTunes uh, where you can rate us, subscribe and leave a review. The show's produced by Rick Halter. I'm Paul Colgan and I've been here with David Scott. We'll catch you next time. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.